Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary PSL. Please join our student pastor, Andrew, for the message, Advent. Well, we are in an Advent series, and so um, normally we go verse by verse to the scriptures, but during this season, um, just for the next two weeks after today, we're gonna be going verse by verse through the Christmas narrative. There's one in Matthew chapter one, um, one and two, I believe, and then there's one in Luke one, which is today, Luke two next week, and then John chapter one on Christmas Eve. I hope that you were excited for Christmas Eve service. Everyone got a card in your seat, amen? Awesome, make sure you give that to somebody, um, especially you know family, friends, relatives, but also to strangers. I've had some, some friends of mine, we were meeting at a Starbucks, we are having a small group Bible study, and we were praying, and then just a stranger walked up to us and said, hi, are you a Christian? And we're like, yes we are, would you like one of these cards? And they started coming to our church, and they had no church body up until that point, and so you never know what God can do with a simple invite card, amen? It's pretty cool. Well, um, Pastor Matt, or excuse me, Pastor Mike talked last week about Christmas songs, and he mentioned that he really loves a lot of the sacred Christmas songs, as do I. I think my personal favorite is O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Man, you, you get, I think Enya does a really good variation of that one, but it is so, so, so good. Um, but I also love a few secular songs, but do you ever notice how Christmas songs usually have a 10 out of 10 like goal, and it feels almost a little bit unachievable. For example, have a holly jolly Christmas, it's the best time of the year, right? Very good, you're with me. Um, best time of the year, but what if it's not the best time of the year? Or I'm dreaming of a white Christmas, but not in South Florida, <laughs> right? Because we never see, has anyone ever seen a white Christmas in South Florida? Has that ever happened in the, one person maybe? Okay, no. No, you have to go somewhere up north for that. Um, or maybe, you know, all I want for Christmas is two front teeth. Oh, that's not where I was going with that one. Uh, that works. Or all I want for Christmas is you, meaning if you aren't in a blissful relationship, then you might have missed out on Christmas altogether. Or maybe um, it's the most wonderful time of the year, good job, well, give yourself a hand, good singing. <laughs> no, but, but really, I feel like Christmas songs put everything at a 10 out of 10 standard. It's the most wonderful time of the year, and the problem is, a lot of times, it's not the most wonderful time of the year. With all the chaos of Christmas shopping, and gifts, and stress, and debt, and family, and irregular schedules, it can actually feel very overwhelming, and Keep in mind that it's 2020, so everything feels overwhelming as it is. And it can feel like there's a really high standard and reality is a loss below that and that leaves you a net unhappiness. And um, the answer, by the way, is to not listen to Christmas music at all, but rather to listen to country music. Because country music is all about the guy's wife running out, his dog dying, and his truck breaking down. And you listen to that and you're like, you know what, my life really isn't that bad, is it? No, I'm kidding, never listen to country music. <laughs> that is not the answer. The answer, the answer is to be honest and live in reality knowing that it might not be a 10 out of 10. Or, or even think about, um, I'm a Disney person, I love to go to Disney World occasionally whenever I get the chance to do that. And um, I love going to Animal Kingdom, but you go in the backside and you can see the back part of the Avatar world or maybe any other you know, amusement park and you see that it's just a building and it's just cardboard. And even though it might feel magical walking in amongst all the fun, exciting things, it's just cardboard and it's not real. And sometimes, if we're not careful, we can treat our faith in the exact same way that we treat 
a Disney world that we know isn't real or a Christmas hype that we know we're not gonna live up to and we start to actually have doubts. Keeping in mind that my generation, the millennial generation, is pretty bitter as well. Have you noticed that? And not for a bad reason. We were told for years and years and years that everybody did a great job on the team and you got a trophy and you were told that everybody, if you could dream it, you could do it. If you can believe it, you can make it happen. And what's happened is we've all gotten to the age when we're living our careers and it turns out that life is actually really hard, isn't it? And that it's not that simple and that it's not gonna be the best version of yourself by the time you're 22. And there, there starts to become this thing where if you're not careful, you start to walk around with these bitter and apathetic and frustrated colored glasses on the world. And if you're not careful, you can start to see Christianity in the same light. Where you say, yeah, I, I really hope that God comes through, but that hope is as weak as you're hoping to have a good time at Disney World, where it's just like, it's an idealism. But hope, according to the biblical definition, is a favorable expectation of the future, knowing that God will come through. And if we're not careful, we can become disenfranchised with our faith, and we can take a bitter attitude towards God. And, and today, we're gonna jump into Luke chapter one, and it's gonna have, it's a pretty long narrative, so I pray that you stay with me, but I couldn't break it up because it's one sequential story, but it's a, it's a study of two people. Each of them are given a promise from God, one of them responds in humble faith, and the other one doubts and questions and wants proof. And I think that if we're not careful, we can end up in the boat where we're not trusting in God with a passionate, humble faith. And church, I don't know about you, but I wanna trust God with everything in my life. Like legitimately, I wanna be able to say, your word says it, I believe it. This speaks to reality. It tells me who I am, it tells me who God is, and it tells me the way to experience life at its fullest. Jesus says that, that Satan has come to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come to give you life abundantly. And you know how you can tell if you're having a deep and abiding faith? It's your obedience, and it's your trust, and it's your simple hope that God is going to come through, and he will. But let's look today at God's word to see these two characters, and we can try to identify with them and see what God's gonna tell us. You ready? All right, before we begin, let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would speak. We are expectant that you, Holy Spirit, would be here. Without you, we're lost. And so I pray that you would speak through your word and that I would only say what you've given me to say and that you'd give us ears to hear and that today we'd walk away different than what we were before we came in. That you'd help us to become more like your son and that you'd help us to have more of an abiding faith that transforms not only our lives but the lives of those people around us. We ask this in the power and the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. All right, chapter one of Luke, verse Five. By the way, Luke is a two-part book. We know this, right? We studied the book of Acts not that long ago. That's the second part of what Jesus is doing through his Holy Spirit and the apostles and the people. This is part one, and it starts off with the birth of John the Baptist. In the days of Herod, the king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. So, so, so far, we hear that Zachariah and his wife Elizabeth, they have a pretty good resume, don't they? They both are of the priestly lineage of Aaron, and they, they're serving the Lord faithfully, and they're righteous, and they're doing it right. But there's a problem, and it's introduced in verse seven. They had no child because Elizabeth 
was barren and both were advanced in years. Meaning this, not only did she have fertility issues, but she's also old enough that that's even out of the question anymore anyway. There seems to be no hope. And while infertility is a challenge in the 21st century, the first century it was even worse. It meant that you weren't gonna have a child to take care of you when you got older. And it also meant that you were kind of ashamed to your community. People even questioned whether there was sin involved in a person's life if they didn't have a child. But the Bible tells us that they were both a righteous couple trying to follow the Lord. Verse eight, now while he was serving as a priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Now we know from different study that scholars believe that there was 18,000 priests during the time of Jesus. That's a lot of priests, right? And so what they would do is they would take two, two-week shifts in the temple every single year outside of the festivals and the feasts that happened regularly throughout the year as well. And so this happened to be when Zechariah was actually on shift in the temple. And then they draw lots, and there's still a lot of priests there, and the lots, by God's sovereignty, fall on Zechariah. And he's gonna go into the temple and light incense. Now, again, this is kind of an odd thing for Protestants years later to figure out what's incense, what's going on here. Well, the incense was lit in the temple to symbolize the prayers of the people that are outside going up to the Lord. It also produced kind of a cloud to keep the priest out of the exact presence of God, and it was a pleasing aroma to God. And so he goes into God's presence and he's gonna light incense and the whole crowd is waiting outside. Verse 11, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. By the way, do you think that angels are just cute little babies with halos fluttering around? Probably not. You probably need to rework your Christmas tree and get some accurate biblical angels on there. They're gonna look more like action figures, I'm guessing. But whatever it is, whatever they look like, they're terrifying, right? Whenever you have an angel, the first thing they say is, don't be afraid, right? And so this is a militant warrior messenger of God, and he's here to bring good news to his people. The angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zachariah, for your prayer has been heard. And what's the prayer? My guess is two things. My guess, he still is asking God for a child, Maybe, maybe not, but I definitely know he's been praying for the deliverance of Israel. Remember that Israel was a nation that during the time of King David was thriving, but years later they were attacked by the Assyrians in the north, the Babylonians in the south, and then after being passed over to the Medo-Persian Empire, were placed back in between Egypt and the Assyrians as a political move. After this, nation after nation came through Greece, and finally Rome took over the known world. And so the Romans were ruling, and the Romans were savages. And you can imagine that Zechariah is praying, where is the promised Messiah? Where is the king that's gonna rescue us from the tyrannical rule of our enemies? He promised to Abraham that he'd bless us, and he promised to David the throne wouldn't end. Where is this king? You can imagine the tension in their minds. So he's in the temple at the hour of prayer, and the angel says to him, a great message that answers both of those prayers. Do not be afraid for your prayer has been answered. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you will call his name John. And now we're gonna learn about what John is going to be like and how he's going to act. And you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink 
and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. That's crazy, isn't it? If you figure that one out, you let me know how that works. But from his mother's womb, he's filled not with alcohol that controls him, but with the Holy Spirit. Do you see the contrast? He's not gonna be a person that's taken over by alcohol and, and have let that run his world and his mind. No, he's gonna abstain from that, but instead, the Holy Spirit will indwell him and guide his actions, thoughts, and his life. How cool is that? I wanna be guided by the Holy Spirit like John the Baptist, man. But from his mother's womb, he already is being guided by the Spirit of God. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. This is a direct prophecy from Malachi chapter four and a whole lot of other places. I, just in my brief study of this passage, if you were to look at every single passage that's being referenced and prophesied up into Luke chapter one and two, we'd be here for three hours. I'm telling you, there's so many prophecies from the Old Testament that's going to be fulfilled in John the Baptist and in Jesus. It goes on and on and on and on and on. But here we find out that John the baptizer is going to be the one who prepares the way for Jesus. He's gonna be great in the eyes of the Lord and he's gonna be an influencer who brings about repentance and gets everybody ready. He's a forerunner. He's like that band that gets on stage before the band that you really wanna see, right? He's the warm-up guy who's like, everybody get ready, and then puts you in the mood for the main show, and Jesus Christ is the main show. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? Now, this is important to get. How shall I know this? He's actually asking for a sign. He wants proof. Now, for those of you that know your Bible well, does God look kindly on people who ask for proofs every time that they're promised something? Not, not so great. You've got a couple moments where, where God's like, hey, test me, you know, especially with giving. But, but primarily, we write in the, read in the Bible that God does not want us to constantly test him, not to have blind faith, but to have faith in his word. But he says, how shall I know this? For, excuse, I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. What a nice guy. <laughs> He's like, I'm old, she's advanced in years. <laughs> You'll catch that pro tip, men. That's a much softer way to say it than saying she's also old, okay? That's a word you just don't use, amen? But he's like, she's advanced. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. This is the warrior angel from Daniel 8 and 9 who talked to Daniel and has been in the very presence of Yahweh God. This being is terrifying and powerful and good. And here's what he says, behold, you want a proof? You will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words. He knows he's doubting, which will be fulfilled in their time. You want proof, you no longer can hear. You no longer can speak. We're gonna find out later that, that actually being deaf was part of it as well. But in that moment, he's mute and he can't say a word. Meanwhile, the people are still outside waiting for Zechariah. And they asked this. The people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering, it is delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and he remained mute. 
And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Man, God gave her a complete miracle. Can you imagine how that would feel? She didn't have a kid, she felt shame, but now she says, the Lord has taken away my reproach. The Lord has looked with favor upon me. What a cool time. That's act one of our story. Let's jump into act two now. We're gonna switch gears and we're gonna jump into a little city not that far away with Mary. In the sixth month, the sixth month of what, by the way? Of Elizabeth's pregnancy, exactly. The sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, I've heard from men who have had pregnant wives, this is the danger zone between six and nine months. This is the foot massage, get them chocolate, whatever they need zone. Is this correct, men? Okay, this is the, I'm just, okay, honey, sounds good. But, but he's mute, so that's interesting. But um, in this moment, Six month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Now, one important thing that we have to talk about really quick, the Jews were so expectant for a blessed one and a promised Messiah. The blessed one we find out in Genesis chapter 12 and 15 was of the Abrahamic covenant where God promised the people that they were gonna have a land. He promised that they were gonna have a blessing on all nations that blessed them and a cursing on the nations that cursed them and also that the blessed seed of Abraham would bring a blessing to the entire world, not just Israel. And who is that blessed seed according to Paul and the Holy Spirit? It's Jesus. He's the blessed one that's gonna bring healing to the world. But then second of all, in 2 Samuel chapter seven, we read that there's a Davidic covenant, a promise given to David where he says, your lineage will never leave the throne. And so you're gonna see these buzzwords of David and Abraham over and over and over again because the people were waiting for a rescuing hero. They were waiting for the Messiah to rise and, and bring them to safety. And they had probably no idea exactly what this was gonna look like, but we find out that it's really, really, really good news. And he says this, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled to the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Don't you want that, church? Wouldn't that be great to be said about you that you have found favor with God? And I wanna live a life like that where, where God is he finds favor in my life, that I live and honor him. I want that life. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and you will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. I wanna do a compare and contrast now. You've got John the Baptist and it says that he is great before the Lord. Jesus is called great, period, full stop. And even though John the Baptist, you can do great things for and with and before the Lord, Jesus is the great one, amen? And then John the Baptist is told you're gonna prepare a way for the Lord and Jesus is told he's the holy one of God. He's the son of God. And John the Baptist might bring repentance for the forgiveness of sins, but Jesus is gonna be the one to forgive sins. 
Well, both of these babies that are promised are going to be world-changing leaders. Both of them die deaths. One is beheaded, the other one's crucified. Jesus is clearly the prominent one in these prophecies. And there's a, a lot of excitement in these verses. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? Now, is she asking for a, a proof as well? I don't think so. She wants to know how is this going to happen, not how will I know it. She says, okay, how is this gonna work? What's the means of this miracle? Because I'm a virgin. I haven't known any man. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. That word overshadow was the same word that was used to describe the overshadowing of the cloud as God guided his people through the desert and it overshadowed the tabernacle. It was the same word that's used when Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration with Elijah and Moses is covered with a cloud. And the very presence of God is here with Mary and he says the, the presence, excuse me, the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Man, can you imagine being Mary right now? Man, and behold, here's a proof. Your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. Church, we need to say this together. Verse 37, you ready? Nothing will be impossible with God. What a good message, amen? If you highlight or underline or star in your Bible, I would star that verse. Nothing is impossible with God. It's really easy at this point to allow your speculative and apathetic and bitter glasses to go on and say, yeah, but maybe God doesn't care about this or, yeah, I know that nothing's impossible, but nothing is impossible with God. Nothing will hold back God from doing his will. And then here's a response from Mary. Mary said, behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now, we know that the angel went first to Mary and then to Joseph. You've gotta see in this statement Mary's absolute faith. Is this gonna be a possible big risk for her to believe the Lord and let it be as he said? Is this gonna come at the possibility of ruining her best relationship with her fiance Joseph, her betrothed? Could this be a scandal that she'll live with for the rest of her life? It is oftentimes the risky choice to follow God, but it is the best choice because the safest place in the universe is to live in the center of God's will for your life. But church, it can be a risk to follow God to really follow him. I think too many times American Christianity says you can, you can follow God pretty well until it becomes awkward or offensive and then just kind of close your mouth and just kind of look the other way. What happens if your boss asks you to cheat or to lie at work? Will there be a personal risk? Absolutely. What if you have to stand up for what is true? John the Baptist stood up and called out the leadership at the time and said, this is sin, and I don't care how you feel about it, this is sin, and I love you enough to tell you, and he lost his head for it. Church, we need to have people that have a faith like Mary, even if it comes down to huge personal risk, amen? This is where God's called us to live. 
She says, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. She has a giant measure of faith. And I find it so beautiful too that you compare Zachariah and Mary at this point. Zachariah was this educated priest entering into God's holy space with people praying outside, lighting incense, and he doubts. Meanwhile, you have Mary, this young, probably uneducated virgin in a hick town in the middle of nowhere, and an angel speaks to her and says, let's go, I'm all in. And that's a warning, I think, to all of us. Does education and biblical literacy equal faith? Does having a deeper understanding of God contribute to your faith? It absolutely can, but not necessarily. As a matter of fact, I'm in my, my master's degree program, I'm in seminary, and the big joke is that seminaries can create cemeteries for your faith. And it's true. And it's a funny joke, but it's terrifying because sometimes when you cloud your mind with all this academic knowledge, it can turn your heart to stone and you can stop caring about the things of the Lord. And I wanna encourage you that you are very careful as you continue to study and understand who God is that allows your heart to change in accord with who he is. That it transforms you from the inside out because without faith, the whole thing is dead anyway, amen? But she has a deep, and abiding faith in the Lord. Let's pick up the story now in verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and she greeted Elizabeth. Why didn't she greet Zechariah? Because he can't speak. So he didn't say anything back. She greets Elizabeth and check this out. When Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. I know that you've probably heard this story a million times. Read it with fresh eyes for me. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy leaped for joy. She comes in and she's like, Elizabeth, where are you at? And immediately she shrieks and she cries out this amazing prophecy because in her womb, only a few months away from delivering, this unborn baby worships the incarnate Christ. Leaping for joy, isn't it crazy? Isn't it mysterious that the first recorded worship of the incarnate Christ is an unborn child? Life is valuable, folks. Starting from conception on, God cares about all life. And in this moment, there's worship. And blessed is she who believed, verse 45. Zechariah doubted, the angel tells us, while Elizabeth tells us that Mary believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And what's the first thing that happens when, when people experience miraculous moments and, and praise? It should result in worship, amen? That should be the automatic go-to result is I'm gonna worship God. And here's what Mary says in her song. It's called the Magnificat, which is Latin for the first word in the sentence, my soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. There was a, there was a mention last week about a, a myth about Mary that she was a perpetual virgin. We know that's not true because Jesus had siblings, half-brothers and sisters, right? Well, there's also a belief out there that Mary was sinless, People, people believe this around the world. And historically, 
The biggest problem with that, first of all, is the Bible teaches that all of sin and fall short of the glory of God outside of Jesus Christ alone. And second of all, in this passage, it says, my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. Why would a sinless person need a savior? She, she sinned. Mary was not perfect, but she was really, really, really faithful and deserves a lot of commendation. But was she sinless? Absolutely not. But she says this, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed or happy. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy, by the way, that word mercy is gonna appear five times in Luke 1. His mercy is for those who fear him. From generation to generation, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in their thoughts of their hearts, and he's brought down the mighty from their thrones, and he's exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever, the Abrahamic covenant, the promise of the blessed one. This whole poem, this whole song is a chance to say God flips the story on its head. We read in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus preaches that blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the poor, blessed are the, because you will be satisfied. And, and he flips the whole story on its head. Those who are rich, they go away hungry. Those who are hungry, he feeds. Because in God's kingdom, he has a different economy, and it's faith. It's faith. And so the story flipped on its head, verse 56, and Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. All right, the final act. You still with me, church? All right, final act in the story. Here we go, verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. Just like the angel said, people are gonna rejoice at his birth. It's happening. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zachariah after his father. There was a naming that happened on the eighth day with circumcision. But the mother said, no, he shall be called John. Now, I remember in, in Hebrew worlds, people would pass on the name of a relative and keep it in the family. That way, people can kind of recognize um, who you belong to. But she says, he will be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to the father inquiring what he wanted, what he wanted him to be called. Why would you need to make signs to a person who's mute? He He can hear though, right? Scholars speculate that maybe when the angel said you will be silent and unable to speak, that he was trapped in a world of deafness and muteness. That in that moment, he couldn't hear a single thing. That's terrifying, isn't it? In that moment, he couldn't hear a sound. He couldn't utter a sound. He was completely lost in his head. And I wonder, though, if that punishment from the angel was actually a blessing in disguise. What do you think that Zachariah thought about for that nine months of no sound. Jesus oftentimes got alone on his own on a mountaintop to pray in silence and solitude. It's actually a great spiritual discipline to unplug and listen to the voice of God. I'd encourage you, actually, church, that if you're the kind of person who feels like you can't hear the voice of God, I would encourage you to unplug and sit in silence and solitude because sometimes we're so busy with our world that we are deaf to the voice of God. 
It's not that God's not speaking, it's that we can't hear him because we are busy, we are active, we are moving. And Zechariah has nine months of silence and solitude. And here he goes, they say to him, making signs, what should we call him? And he asked for a writing tablet, verse 63. He asked for a writing tablet and he wrote, his name is John. Notice that Elizabeth says, he shall be called John, future tense. Well, um, Zachariah says, his name is John. Why? Because he wasn't doing the naming. He was recognizing what God was doing. This went from a moment of, how will I know this is gonna happen? My wife's old, we're advanced in age, to this is what's happening. We're on board with God's agenda. And he had a change of heart and a dramatic repentant faith. Isn't that beautiful? Man, church, if you're here today, maybe you're, maybe you're like a Mary, and praise God if you're like a Mary and you've got a deep faith, but maybe you're like a Zachariah and you've doubted and you have the bitter glasses on and you're like, is God really gonna fulfill what he just told me? Is he really gonna step up? I'd encourage you, man, have faith like Zachariah. Get away and be in God's presence and let him speak to you and you can say, this is going to happen because of what God has done for me. And they all wondered, and immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke. What do you think you would say if you were nine months without speaking? Would you be like, curse you? I cannot believe you would make me be mute for this many years, whatever, or this many months. Like, how wild is that? No, the first thing he says is a blessing to God. Blessing God in 65, fear fell on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the kill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. Verse 67, and his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesied. And here's a second song that we read in this passage and it's beautiful. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel for he has visited and redeemed his people. He's bought them back. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. The redeeming king is coming. And he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And then he breaks away and he stops the song and he looks at his son, maybe in his arms, and he says this to his son, and you, child, you'll be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. And here's what you're gonna do, John. You're gonna give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Listen to this. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. Isn't that a good line? I'm gonna read that verse again, the last two. To give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. To give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. 
And that's Luke one. And Luke two picks up with the birth of Jesus Christ and we'll get that next week. I'm excited for it. But today, here's my question. Zachariah doubted and didn't believe God, even though he was a priest, even though he was in the temple, even though he was surrounded by people praying, he doubted the promise. And then Mary, this humble teenager, believed. And I think that American Christianity gets really comfortable doubting and being skeptical. As a matter of fact, we praise it as a great attribute to be skeptical, right? That's not a good thing. Skepticism is laziness most of the time. I'll say that again, skepticism is laziness most of the time. Instead, will you have faith like a child and believe the promises that he's given you? Now, has he given everyone the promise that they're gonna have a child like Elizabeth? Of course not. But he has promised us great things. And I would encourage and challenge you today to start looking up and memorizing and believing the promises of God like I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Or like Matthew 28, behold, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. Like Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Maybe you're here and you've been living a life of sin and you are afraid to approach God because you feel like God is angry. Because you imagine that God is shaking his fist at you and ashamed of you. The truth is quite the opposite in the scriptures. Well, God might be disciplining you. The verse says that the tender mercy of our God is like a sunrise. The tender mercy. God is merciful to you. So, so why do you have this view that you have to prove to God all the time? Why don't you accept his love, receive his mercy, and then live in obedience out of the mercy and not trying to earn it? Amen, church? It's a totally different attitude. God is merciful and kind and compassionate to his people. And maybe you're here and you're like, honestly, I'm like Zachariah and I'm doubting. Come back, repent. And maybe you're here and you're like, to be honest, life has been a mess. The Christmas season has been wild. 2020 has been wild. I feel exhausted. I feel burnt out. Well, Jesus says that his teaching and his yoke are easy. His burden is light. Maybe you need to be like Zachariah and spend time alone with God privately this Christmas season. Get away from the relatives and the gift wrapping and the TV shows and the Christmas movies and just be in his presence knowing that he is faithful and good. Take off those glasses and say, I believe that you are faithful and good and merciful to me. If you are here today and you have never experienced the mercy of God, I would literally love nothing more than to talk to you about who Jesus is. And so after the service, please come down to the front. If you're here and you're like, to be real, I've been struggling um, I know people have been depressed and anxious and burnt out on this year. We would love to talk with you and pray over you and minister to you. And so right after I'm done talking right now, we're gonna have pastors and elders and their wives and people down front that wanna pray for you. But I wanna challenge you, church, to live a life of faith. Live a life of obedient faith with humility before God because it absolutely changes everything. When I, was, when I was a kid, my dad and I loved to go hunting together. Um, anybody else in here hunting people? 
That's the rednecks, good, I'm one of you, <laughs> it's good. Um, I was a kid and we used to drive out into the fields before, before the light came up and it was this rickety old pickup truck and we drove out to the fields and we'd walk around trying to find our blind which was on the edge of this big open field. My dad had one flashlight and I was super tiny, I don't remember how old I was, but I was little and I had like snow pants on because I was freezing cold and I'm like shh, 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 make a lot of noise and my dad and I are trying to find the blind and uh, we're walking along and he cannot find it. And so after a while, he's like, Andrew, here. He brought me to the center of the field and said, sit here, I'm gonna go find the blind. Like, I love you. Basically, I'm holding him up from finding it quickly. So he sets me down and then walks away. And I watch the light get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And I am terrified. Who leaves a kid in a field, you know what I'm saying? Like, I love you, dad, but whoa. And so he takes off and um, I laid on my back and looked up and I see these brilliant stars. And I was scared. I'm like, what's gonna happen? Well, after a few minutes of waiting expectantly, I look and this little tiny beam of flashlight just becomes visible from the woods. And my dad starts walking back and this light gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And with every step, I felt more secure. I felt more sure of where my footing was. And I felt more clear with his presence being there. And that is just like the mercy of God because the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, just like a sunrise breaking over the crest of the water on the ocean, the mercy of God is coming in Jesus Christ, and he has come. And if you need mercy today, please don't hesitate to experience the mercy of God.